Welcome to this month's JAT Chat. My name is Chris Coons, and I'm the Associate Editor for Digital Applications at the Journal of Athletic Training, and I'm also your special guest host for this episode of JAT Chat. In this issue, we're going to have the first in a series of short interviews with authors of papers from this month's special double issue on mental health in the Journal of Athletic Training. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. Shelby Baez, who's an assistant professor from the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Dr. Kate Jacobson, who's a researcher from the Center of Health Outcomes and Interdisciplinary Research at Massachusetts General Hospital and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. During this interview, Dr. Baez and Dr. Jacobson are going to focus primarily on their current clinical concepts paper in that special double issue of the Journal of Athletic Training on integration of psychologically informed practice for management of patients with sport-related injuries. Thank you both for joining us this month. If you wouldn't mind, could you give me a little bit of information about how you came together to write this important paper and maybe a little bit about your independent research interests? Yeah, I'm happy to to start there. When the mental health special issue was announced, uh, I was fortunate to be able to be asked to contribute from a current clinical concept standpoint on how we can uh, engage in a psychologically informed practice. And when thinking about uh, developing this document, I wanted to to lean on some of my other colleagues in this space to make sure that I was uh, wasn't coming from it from just an, an ACL specific lens. Uh, which is how uh, Dr. Jockinson, uh got involved in in this particular paper. Um, so the current clinical concept paper really is looking at integrating psychologically informed practice into sport-related injuries. Uh, and my background is I'm an athletic trainer, but I'm also trained as a sport and exercise psychology professional. So my research really is at this intersection of psychological and biological outcomes after injury. Absolutely. That's a great intro, Dr. Baez. Thank you. And thank you for allowing me to contribute. Um, I think, you know, uh, working with Dr. Baez in this space has been an honor and really a long time coming. We did a lot of training together at the University of Kentucky and have sort of, you know, been in similar circles for a really long time. I think one of the things we really wanted to do with this paper also is provide some really practical steps for clinicians so that they can actually integrate this into their practice to take it from something that maybe feels a little bit abstract to something really tangible. Great. Thanks for that uh, brief overview of kind of how the collaborative relationship came together. Um, Can you provide just a little bit of a high-level overview about what the kind of goals of the paper were uh, as you were starting to develop it and as it's come to fruition in the mental health special issue? Yeah, so I think the the purpose of the paper, like I mentioned, was to really provide a high-level overview for clinicians and provide them practical tips on how to integrate this into their practice. We did that a few different ways. We talked a lot about how we can screen for mental health symptoms and psychological responses to injury and provided, you know, specific screening tools that we think are really useful and would recommend. Um, And then additionally, we talked about frequency and timing of screening And then we moved into, okay, you screened, you've identified a problem in a patient's, you know, thoughts and feelings about their injury or recovery, what can we do about it? And so then we actually went through some different evidence-based psychosocial interventions that do fall within the scope of athletic training. And so we tried to provide a lot of references and really get into the specifics of what these interventions are and how a clinician can pick up this clinical concepts paper and actually start to integrate these into their clinical practice. Um, 
towards the end, I believe we talked, you know, also about, you know, policy and procedure and really making sure that we're accounting for not just, you know, some unhelpful thoughts about pain and injury, but really when to refer and how to facilitate that, the referrals to mental health professionals. Dr. Baez, I I know when we're thinking about kind of psychologically informed practice and, and especially the screening or the evaluation side of psychologically informed practice, you know, clinicians can often struggle with understanding kind of how to develop a approach to screening or a approach to evaluation that kind of fits a broad complement of patients with multiple different pathologies. And so I was wondering if you might be able to just give us some, some kind of quick hit points or some important bullet points about what are the characteristics of an effective screening or the characteristics of an effective evaluation strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think where I'll start with that is just by defining maybe psychologically informed practice a little bit more effectively. Um, So when we say this term psychologically informed practice, it's meaning to incorporate the patient's beliefs, attitudes, and emotions into uh, the management of the patient based on biopsychosocial models. Uh, So when thinking about that and thinking about our screening, it means we need to include biological screening, psychological screening, as well as social screening. The other piece here is that psychologically informed practice doesn't mean that an athletic trainer or a rehab specialist has to become a psychologist or vice versa. Um, It's a balance between the traditional musculoskeletal rehabilitation and evaluation that we do on the day-to-day with the integration of the different psychosocial techniques uh, that Dr. Jockinson mentioned previously that are within the scope of our practice. Now, from a screening standpoint, uh, I think there's a lot of different ways you can go. Um, We often recommend uh, screening patients at major clinical time points. Um, So uh, I'll use ACL as an example. Um, We often see potentially pre-surgery, three months, six months, and prior to clearance to return to sport as potentially some major times to uh, screen for potentially general mental health symptoms, psychological readiness, and potentially some sort of uh, concept related to pain, maybe like pain catastrophizing behaviors. Um, so screening at those major clinical time points will be important, but also screen if we think that a patient may be exhibiting some sort of robust psycho, potentially maladaptive psychological response. Don't just wait for that clinical time point to roll around to start having the conversation. And I think the second part to that also goes into using these screening tools to help facilitate the conversation. Don't rely on just the cutoff score and what the patient scores on the the questionnaire to gather whether you should start to integrate some of these psychological interventions, Uh, but to really use these questionnaires and these screening tools to help facilitate conversations to figure out where to go for next steps. Dr. Jacobson, um, as a follow-up, I found table one in the paper to be extremely effective and just as kind of a titling of that table, it was really an area where you started to break down what the evidence around intervention for specific kind of constructs of of psychological response to injury or potentially mental health after injury uh, would look like. And so I was wondering, could you just briefly talk us through kind of the process in developing that table and then areas that you think might be kind of surprising or interesting for clinicians who are going to read this paper or listen to the podcast? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I think the thing that is really important here for clinicians, at least this was really helpful for me when I started integrating this into my practice, is to think about are the unhelpful thoughts and feelings related to the injury or the presenting problem? If yes, then that's really important because the thoughts and feelings that your patient has are going to be related to their help-seeking and health-related behaviors. 
and also they're modifiable. So we're talking about interventions, right? How did we come to these different um, interventions that we suggest in the paper? And um, we came to them based on the evidence. So we really looked through to see, okay, what interventions can we integrate into psychologically informed practice? And what is the evidence available to support that intervention? Um, and so, you know, we really have a broad varieties, you know, stemming from cognitive interventions, you know, like pain neuroscience education, to mindfulness or relaxation types of interventions, um, and then some behavioral interventions, you know, like goal setting, we can try to, to modify behavior. And so I think the thing that's going to be maybe surprising to people is really how simple <laughs> some of these interventions are. Once you become comfortable with them, teaching someone um, diaphragmatic breathing or taking a few minutes to goal set, they can be really effective and they don't take a lot of time. Um, and so I think that that sometimes people can feel overwhelmed by integrating new things into their practice. And so I think one thing that folks might find surprising is, is that some of these are, are really quite simple and can have a big effect. Um, the other thing to note is that some of them don't have a really strong strength of recommendation. And so that is really a call to the researchers who might be listening um, or the clinicians who are interested in research as well to really try to build evidence so that we know which of these interventions are most effective and for whom, um, because that's a really important um, thing to differentiate the interventions that might work for certain folks who have a specific thought feeling behavior related to their injury might not be the most appropriate for a different person who has a different response, uh, psychological response to their injury. So who um, are we targeting and with which intervention is, is going to be something important for researchers to figure out in the future? I think one more thing to, to add from an interesting standpoint when looking at the strength of recommendations, uh, athletic trainers and rehab specialists, like we we pride ourselves on providing social support. And I think we all feel pretty confident and, and agree that uh, providing effective social support can be helpful for our patients. But that was the area that we see the least amount of evidence in uh, when trying to engage in this psychologically informed practice. Um, so I think there's this going to be a push for us to start documenting what we're doing, whether we're in the clinic uh, or whether we're in a research uh, facility or research setting to show the role of social support and how that may impact our, our clinical outcomes. I did want to follow up on something that Dr. Jacobson said earlier, and this question's for either of you, whoever's, you know, feels as though you can respond to it best. But, you know, I think athletic trainers often run into this discomfort with psychologically informed practice when it comes to like towing the line between things that I can handle independently versus when I need to refer to another medical uh, professional who may be more expert or have better training in the area. And so I was wondering, like, how do you perceive that kind of you know, red line or that that point at which it's important for an athletic trainer to realize that they may need to kind of collaborate with other medical professionals to make sure that the care delivered is is ideal for the patient? Yeah, that's a really important question. And so I'm really glad that you asked. I think, you know, if patients are demonstrating any types of red flags, excessive worry or stress, any talks of hopelessness or suicide, self-harm, you're noticing changes in their personality, 
Um, you know, they disclose anything that might be concerning. Those are all certainly times to refer and, and really having a robust referral network is really important. Um, and we also do in the paper go through and recommend a specific um, process for referral, including, you know, involving the patient in that process and navigating soft handoffs if that's available to you. Um, but I think that, you know, it also comes down to clinician comfort. If you feel like even if it's related to their injury or their presenting problem, and even if it's not necessarily what you consider a red flag, if you don't feel like you have the skills to help that patient, those feelings and thoughts about their injuries still need to be seen and heard and addressed. And so if you feel like it's not something you're comfortable with, um, don't wait until you see a red flag to refer. Um, certainly refer uh, if you're seeing any, any concerning signs. Dr. Baez, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I think the, the only thing I'll say is that I think the question that I'm often asked is, uh, what do we do if we don't have like a sports psychologist on staff or if we don't have a mental health provider directly on staff? Um, one of the things I think you could start to do is to see what's available in your area separate from your institution, your university. If you go to the Association for Applied Sports Psychology website, you can do a search for certified mental performance consultants in your area, uh, and that will allow you to uh, identify potentially some CNPCs from a performance psychology lens uh, that can help you uh, if you're at a high school and you may not have access to a mental health provider. Um, before we start to wrap up, I, my last question would be, do you have any, and I know you've listed some in the paper, so you can highlight those, or if you've got other recommendations, that'd be great as well. But are there like especially helpful resources or other information that's available out there for clinicians to access as they're trying to either improve in their psychologically informed practice or as they just want some kind of foundational information to rely upon as they're making clinical decisions? That's a great question. Dr. Baez, I'd be curious what resources you can you can suggest. I do know that this year at, at the annual convention, um, Dr. Baez and myself will be doing a learning lab on psychologically informed clinical practice. So that could be a good resource for folks. Um, and I know both of us are, you know, really willing and eager to talk with anyone, clinicians, researchers, anybody um, about how they can start integrating this into their practice. So the paper is a good resource. We are both available as resources, as well as many others who are doing great work in this space. Um, Dr. Baez, other resources we can point folks toward? Yeah, I think uh, if you're wanting just to start on a potentially just a, a basic some sort of education, maybe like a mental health first aid course um, could be something that you can take to potentially just identify and, and learn how to screen and facilitate maybe some of those more challenging conversations with patients regarding mental health and well-being. Uh, another resource uh, that I haven't explored a ton, but I've seen it recommend a couple of times is this uh program called Sideline, Side Sidelined. Um, and what that program is it does, it provides resources directly for athletes who may have some sort of career ending injury or season ending injury from a social support standpoint. There's podcasts, there's some tangible pieces there that can help a, a patient and also help the provider as they're trying to navigate the psychological space. Um, I like the plug for the uh, learning lab that we're going to do at NATA next year. Uh, and also the, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology also has a couple of different workshops uh, that are available 
available uh, so you can learn a little bit more about psychologically informed practice from the sports psychology lens. Yeah, that's a that's a great list. And I also know that this month's you know double issue of the Journal of Athletic Training has a few other clinical concepts papers and editorials and review papers that provide some other recommendations for resources or from pla- for places that clinicians might be able to look for help in their local kind of setting, whatever that might be. So um, as we're wrapping up today, uh, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, in writing the paper, you you generally, uh, as you write a paper, have a few different points that you feel like, oh, my goodness, if someone, you know, could take one thing home or two things home from this paper, I hope it would be this. And so I'm wondering from both of your perspectives, is there a specific thing or a short list of things that you would say, if a clinician were to read this paper, I hope that by the time they're done, they would feel more comfortable or confident with with this specific idea. I think the the first piece of what I would, my initial gut when you asked that question um, was to say, it's just to start measuring these psychological responses in, in practice. Even if you don't necessarily feel confident with intervening, I think starting to measure it and starting to have the conversation um, is something that I hope that clinicians and providers can get from the, the paper. We provide a couple of different recommendations on patient-reported outcomes that can be integrated into clinical practice. And I think at the very bare minimum of what I would hope a provider gets from this is to start integrating these different PROs into practice. Yeah, I love that, Dr. Baez. I'll echo that. I think that starting the conversation will help to reduce the stigma. So it's really step one. Start having that conversation with your patients and your athletes and your colleagues. And by starting to measure, um, that's one way of starting the conversation, right? So it can help to reduce stigma. I think one takeaway I hope people get is really to just kind of start small and start where they are. Pick one or two things that you can tangibly do. Learn, reach out, use resources, add them to your toolbox. Um, And the other thing that I think is really important, and I honestly can't remember how much we talked about it, but I think is will resonate with clinicians is being conscious of the language that they're using and really shifting away from pathoanatomic descriptions of pain and injury can really go a long way um, in terms of getting buy-in from your patients and, um, you know, really helping to improve their confidence when they they have a better understanding of pain in general. And so those would be my my takeaways that I hope people grab from this paper. Well, I'd like to thank both of you very much for taking the time to uh, participate in today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And even more than that, uh, taking the time to put together the great resource that you've uh, put together for the special issue on mental health. I think it's a great resource. And I like the fact that it doesn't just limit itself to a single patient population or a single pathology, but it's more a broad resource uh, for psychologically informed practice for athletic trainers. And so uh, I think that's great. Uh, With that, I'd like to wrap up today's podcast by just reminding everyone that the Journal of Athletic Training uh, is supported by the National Athletic Trainers Association and that this month's double issue on mental health is available now. Uh, And with that, I'd like to say thank you very much for your time and I hope you have a very happy holiday. 